1: So we've hit the big time. We uh, we have a we. This is the first episode that we're going to be on uh, foreign policy's uh, feed as part of Lawfare's like New Deal with with foreign policy. It's very exciting.
0: It is very exciting. Hello. Foreign policy, er, listeners who are wondering what exactly we're doing on their feet. Yeah, who, who are? <laughs> these oh, you're going to be in for a treat. <laughs> who are these Stick people? Stick around. How the heck
1: did you end up
2: how on my this podcast? Why are you in Can I just say this feed? is
3: this is the best distribution deal ever because we foreign policy is distributing the Rational Security podcast and we don't even have to read me undies ads. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But so we do. A professional all professional will read me undies so ca- ads. Can we
1: just can we just say me undies?
3: They
0: might be sponsoring this now, so we have to be very careful. Not our problem. (laughs) We
3: love you guys.
2: (laughs) Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Smoke and the Gun edition. I'm Shane Harris from the Wall Street Journal. We're here in the Jungle Studio. If there are thousands new people listening to us today, you too will soon know the wonders of the Jungle Studio. Okay, don't start fast forwarding, please. <laughs> I'm here with my good friends Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittes, and Tamara Kaufmanis. Hi, guys. Hi. Shay. Hey. Happy day fourth. after the fourth. Yeah. Should
1: I we mean, give a little introduction to ourselves for the for, for the foreign policy listenership that's never heard of us before? I mean, I like to
0: assume everybody is aware of. I that mean, they'll
2: catch up, sure, right? right? I mean, Hi. you're here. It's an irreverent take on the week's news and national security and foreign policy. Ben runs this blog with a cannon. Like Tammy <laughs> used to work with, in like some the State Department or something. Susan, I don't know. Susan used to be a spooky Mead. cyber person. I write stuff.
0: You know it- the usual. All right,
1: enough introduction. Let's get, get on with the goddamn thing.
2: Oh, This week on the podcast, the first signs of potential collusion between the Trump and campaign in Russia emerge. State Department employees say they're uncertain about the future of their work under the Trump administration, and the president is facing a major foreign policy crisis in North Korea as he prepares to meet with world leaders, including Vladimir Putin. You've heard of him. Um, let's start with, I can't call it the big story of the week because I wrote it. Um,
0: it was was the big story of the week.
2: It was a big story. It was a big story. It was a big story. You kicked ass. Yeah, it was a fun week. Uh, So for those who missed it, we published a couple stories in the Wall Street Journal about a man named Peter W. Smith, who is a former political operative. I say 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 former, former. yes, because he's not much of anything anymore because Peter Smith died. Uh, But Peter Smith was this Republican operative who was well-known in the early years of the first Clinton administration for being kind of a muckraker on Bill Clinton and stirring up controversy around some of his personal piccadillos, uh, led a, in the most recent uh, campaign cycle an effort to get in touch with Russian hackers who he believed had gotten hold of Hillary Clinton's emails from her private server. Uh, and he portrayed Mike Flynn, none other than Mike Flynn, a senior advisor of the Trump campaign, as being someone who was an ally in this effort. Um, so... Uh, this story has come out and caused quite a stir, and I think now people are saying, people are saying, guys. Everyone's me. saying. People are saying. Many uh, people think that. Many people think that. Um, the way that I actually, I liked it really well as Chuck Todd put it on Meet the Press is um, we have smoke and a gun. Now the question is, do they go together? Um, so the question really has become the degree to which, if at all, Mike Flynn and or the Trump campaign was aware of what Peter Smith was doing or coordinating with him or giving him direction uh, on that. Um, I kind of like to just, you know, wonder now the question is, I guess for me is like, where does this story go from here as a reporter? But what has your guys impression been from the fallout of what we're learning about what Mike Flynn may or may not have been doing with Peter Smith, also just what Peter Smith was doing, which is pretty extraordinary in its own right. And so far as that seems to me like a form of collusion with Russian hackers, no? or at least attempted collusion. or attempted collusion. right? Yeah,
3: I I mean, I guess, you know, on the one hand, it's the kind of hard edged oppo research that. We've seen in American political campaigns since Lee Atwater kind of pioneered it, right? Right. Um, But I think that what's notable here is that in the midst of mounting evidence, which was the subject of public discussion, the, the Russians were engaged in hacking and interfering in our elections, that this political operative didn't care. He was careless about that interference and perfectly willing to interact with it if it would benefit him. And so, you know, collusion, I think, implies that there's some sort of agreement on the goal or on the objective, and I think maybe alliance of convenience is uh, is a mm-hmm. good description here. So one of the things is,
0: you know, and we've sort of seen a shift in the right-wing talking points about, um, you know, first it was there's no evidence of collusion, now there's, well, if it was, collu- if there was evidence, then collusion's not such a big deal. Um, so I think what's significant is that about this particular story, is it sort of it it represents a new phase in the development of the way we are going to be talking about these efforts of coordination. So collusion isn't really a thing in this context. It only exists in, in essentially antitrust law. But people have been using the term collusion because they're trying to describe this sort of like big nebulous group of activities that are sort of bad, sort of secret. They're not really using it in a legal sense. Now what we're seeing is the kind of concrete, specific allegations in which you can start to map genuine legal terms onto them. Now You're still being speculative, but legal terms like conspiracy, legal terms like solicitation all sorts of things that that I think this is, I think this story is sort of the first um, really specific thing on the table that is going to allow us to start thinking in, in a different way, in a more sort of legally minded way, and especially asking what Mueller's team is thinking about this information, about what took place. Was there anything improper and improper that we didn't, we weren't already aware of? And was there anything illegal?
1: So I would say, Uh, This story, by and large, is consistent with a sleazy operation that's entirely protected by the First Amendment. It's also consistent with a grotesquely illegal and improper uh, uh, operation that you would want to uh, have criminally investigated and that and w- where it is on that spectrum entirely depends on facts not yet in evidence. And let's let's identify three categories of facts that we don't know the answer to. First of all, um, what is the real relationship between Smith and the Trump campaign? Mm-hmm. Uh, is this um, something and there's a range of possibilities here, right? He could be, um, uh, blowing smoke, that is there's he, we know he knew Flynn, mm-hmm. but we don 't know that Flynn was involved in this other than that he said he was uh, that, that Smith said he was so but secondly was if Flynn was involved, was he involved in a personal capacity or was he involved as a representative of the c- campaign, which is the way Smith represented it so the first is what 's the relationship between the operation and the Trump campaign? Second question is, uh, were they really in touch with Russian hackers who were, uh, you know, state, state-backed operatives in some sense, i.e. was the other party to these negotiations that they were involved in Russian intelligence? Uh, or was that some, somebody who was taking them for a ride? And the third is, were there real emails? Or were were the emails just a, a, a dangled piece of, you know, bait? Um, and I think until you know the answers to those questions, it's pretty hard to know exactly what yeah. they were really doing. Uh, and I think, you know, there are a few people. Smith had a uh, had a uh, associate, according to Matt Tate's article, who was working with him on this. This was somebody who's presumably now not did um, who could probably answer some of these questions? Flynn could answer a bunch of these questions, um, but I think it's probably a little bit premature to to figure out w- which criminal statutes, if any, this maps onto without knowing sort of precisely what
2: happened. And there's something... Oh, sorry, sure, go ahead.
3: Well, it's really a question for you, Shane, since you've been doing so much reporting on this. You know, the connection to the... between what Peter Smith was doing on the Trump campaign really rests or seems to rest in the person of Mike Flynn, at least based on what we know so far. And so, you know, Flynn now cut loose from Trump world, right? Mm-hmm, right. Um w- What's he saying, if anything, What and what do we know about what he has said yeah. um, on this that would help us understand that connection?
2: So on the record, he hasn't said anything, right? I mean, did he, he didn't you know, respond to a request for comment for the story we wrote. Um, interestingly, the Trump campaign gave a comment, which went by the campaign, we should say we mean the actual campaign to reelect 2020, which is staffed by people who did work on the, the 2016 <laughs> campaign. Um, Can said, we just
3: pause for a moment and say that the fact that that already exists and is and already other, holding
0: rallies is, and is bumming me out.
3: But it's go ahead.
2: Um, so uh, but on behalf of the campaign, this, this person said <clears throat> um, Peter Smith wasn't working for our campaign. And if General Flynn was coordinating with Peter Smith, he was doing that in his own capacity, not as representative of the campaign, which raises an interesting issue that I've struggled with to try and understand when exactly does a campaign make that distinction? Uh, is it when it's convenient or is there an actual line that you can identify when somebody is engaged in behavior X that is clearly not part of the campaign versus behavior Y, which is? Um, I suppose a lot of that answer rests on whether or not there's, you know documentation of Mike Flynn telling other people in the campaign about Peter Smith if that were to exist. Um, but effectively, you know Mike Flynn hasn't said anything so far about this. Um, uh, I mean he-
1: but there is one piece of evidence. That uh, you know, strikes me as significant, although not dispositive in this regard, which is Peter Smith had this weird obsession with the idea that Hillary Clinton's emails were, the private server was hacked, and the 30,000 missing emails weren't, in fact missing. They were stolen by right. foreign operatives. And, and he wasn't
2: the only person who thought that.
1: And was. that was what give, gave rise no. to this right. uh, this effort. Donald Trump, in July of 2016, gives a speech in which he makes the same suggestion that the you know Russians, if you've got these emails, please you know please turn them over. Right. Uh, And over the weekend, an interview with Flynn surfaced in which he said essentially the same thing. This is
2: from back in August on a show called Caravan to Midnight. Right. Which was a new one for me. Is that like
3: slouching toward (laughs) Gamar? Probably. (laughs)
2: It's in the the genre.
1: And so I think at a minimum, you can say that these three people were operating on the basis of the same uh, eccentric theory of – what happened to Clinton's missing emails, mm-hmm. and they all seemed to believe that they had been hacked by the Russians uh, and might become public. And that does strike me as as uh, at least suggestive that there may be uh,
3: they uh, all as independent. Smith, as yes.
1: Smith says, they may have been working together. No, no, this. no.
3: They all independently thought the same thing. And great each minds, of, man. Each of them in individually thought, wow, wouldn't it be great if somebody were trying to find these emails? I wonder if anybody right. might be doing that. Hmm. And, and so,
1: so I, I think you can say, like, to go back to, to Chuck Todd's metaphor – smoke, yeah. gun, right. Um, the question is whether one's coming, or <laughs> maybe I should say b- <laughs> smoke, smoke baby the cannon, <laughs> right, right. the question is whether one's coming from the other.
2: Right. And I think, I think, yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think just obviously as a reporting matter, that's kind of where we go next. I do want to say one thing on the whole, uh, well, two things I want to say. First off, I've gotten a lot of questions over how Peter Smith died. I'm to be very clear. I do not know. We are in the midst of still trying to find the answer to that. He was, he was
3: like 81. 81 he right? was
2: 81 years old. But like of naturally, I mean, well, I don't know if say naturally, predictably, uh, lots of people on the Twitters and elsewhere have been raising all kinds of nefarious scenarios about how he may have departed this earth. Uh, but I do not know the answer to that question. Um, he may have been ill. I don't know. So let's just put that out there. But secondly, the idea that Hillary Clinton's emails may have been compromised before she deleted them um it's not that crazy i mean there are you know it's you know jim comey held out the distinct possibility last july that the email server had been hacked um you know i've casually spoken to very credible people in intelligence and national security server, ser- circles who say, yeah, it's entirely possible. Why wouldn't the Russians or the Chinese try to get yeah. her? So the premise of what they were after, that in and of itself, I don't think was right. so far My point
1: out. isn't that the premise is that eccentric. My point is that the the there's more to the premise that they were operating with than that. The premise that they're operating on is – That the server was in fact compromised, that the emails were stolen by the Russians, and that they are now recoverable Mm. and going to be released Mm. in the context of the election. And all three of them are flirting with that premise at exactly (laughs) Exactly the the same same time. time. And it does seem to me probable that that's because one of them was working to facilitate exactly that outcome.
3: Right, we which brings hobbies. us back around to, you know, the fundamental question that has dogged the Trump presidency since January 20th, which is to what extent did Trump or his supporters or his campaign workers um, willingly participate in Russian efforts to interfere in our electoral process. And,
0: you know, and that, you know, that Donald Trump is responsible for the people who work for him, um, that that's sort of that's one of the like definitive features uh, of being president of the United States and of being a, a presidential candidate, that he brought people like Mike Flynn, not just into the campaign, but into his security briefings. He hi- he hired him as his national security advisor. There's any other number of people that might have been involved in unseemly or or Worse types of behavior that he then Brought into highly sensitive positions in the Administration so this notion of Well whatever they were doing on their own time and that's Got nothing to do with me no You are responsible you are Accountable to the American people for what These people did on your behalf And if you find out that they did Something um, that was not Acceptable to you that they somehow got the wrong Message about what you would want them to be doing On their behalf um, we're going To need to see uh, a Different kind of reaction and response. Response from Trump, both to punish the people who did things that were wrong and also set a very clear message with his staff moving forward.
2: Alright, speaking of staff and clear messages... <laughs>
0: <laughs> the In
2: State the other Department, direction. Yeah, the State Department ha- has produced a 110 page report based on a survey that inquired feedback from, this is a pretty astonishing number, 35,836 employees or about 43% of people who received the survey, basically taking the temperature of the State Department.
0: But can I just say, <laughs> did you need a million dollars to find out the people at the State Department? Hey, the State Department were worried, this is a highly dispersed unhappy.
2: workforce. I mean, people had to take trips to hardship posts. Email doesn't get everywhere. It's funny that
1: it this story comes out survey, just though. now because just the other day, I FOIA'd uh, the comparable surveys at the FBI.
3: Was, were they done by an outside firm for $1.1 $1. $1 million?
1: I don't know who does the
2: FBI uh, employee...
3: We should uh, get into this business, guys. Seriously. Yeah, we should lucrative. do
1: that.
2: I'd take a survey. Well, let's say what the survey said, Charlie. Yeah, survey, survey, survey said. <laughs> uh, I'll just read from the lead by from my awesome colleague, Felicia Schwartz. At the journal, thousands of State Department and U.S. Agency for International Development employees indicated in a survey that they are worried about the future of their agencies with some expressing particular concern about lack of support from the Trump administration and Secretary of State Rex Tillerson.
3: Can't imagine why. Like <laughs> you know, the, the amazing thing about this is that the administration comes in, OMB proposes a, thir- a one-third cut in the state and USAID budget. The, uh, the new Secretary of State walks into the building and lectures his employees about how the campaign is over and they need to get over it. And... And then they have to hire an outside company to discover that their employees are worried about the future and, and worried about their leadership. Can, I mean,
1: can, can I just point out that one State Department employee who is clearly worried about the future and the leadership is Rex Tillerson, yeah. because he keeps blowing up at the young twerps in the White House who well, were we trying to boss
3: We don't know him around. if he took the survey. Yeah, so is like, I, I, w- I want to Although there is a
0: great <laughs> line where they say that um, they, the State Department employees were asked to address Mr. Tillerson directly, which they did, some were highly complimentary, and others were, quote, coarse and vulgar.
3: <laughs> wow. Yeah, I so I I think that there's an interesting kind of do a b- breakdown in the survey results because there's a part of the results that What you would have seen under any administration, which is the technology sucks, there's too much bureaucracy, it takes too long to get our travel vouchers through. Like, okay, that's all been true for years. And, you know, part of that is just the bureaucracy of managing taxpayer money and all of the many... um,
2: So, like, that stuff didn't... That was like, when you were at state, same issues. Same issues.
3: The IT infrastructure is horrible. You know, the, the bespoke software packages that you have to use Use to do your employee reviews are just excruciating to use. Um, the, your email storage quota is capped at a ridiculously low level. These are problems that are endemic to the federal government, I dare say, not just the State Department. And they're no, they are not at all new. But the findings, on the other hand, that relate to leadership are pretty blistering. Mm. Employees saying things like, I don't think that that the White House and the Secretary of State understand what we're here to do. And the one that really struck me was at the end of Felicia Schwartz's article, uh, a quotation from a survey respondent who said, basically, we're just a big Labrador puppy and we'd love to jump in your lap. Like, Please just give us a little bit of love and respect and we will love you and we will work for you. Um, But we're not getting that. And to me, that was it was a story about an agency that feels truly abandoned um, at a moment when you look around the world and we need them to be out there working hard, you know, and that doesn't mean that they have to feel loved and supported in everything they do, but they need some basic guidance and they need to believe that their leadership knows what they're there for and will put them to work.
2: Do you, is this, I mean, this is going to be a very cynical sounding question, but to what extent do you think that people in the White House are reading these survey results and going, great, worked according to plan? I mean, there is this sense of wanting to, the Trump administration wanting to dismantle state, not filling, you know, many, many of the positions in the sort of sub-cabinet levels um, I think a lot of people believe that Steve Bannon, you know, just essentially wants to dismantle the apparatus. There was this enormous budget cut that was proposed several months ago. Um, I mean, do you think people in the White House are reading these results and sort of, you know, patting I, themselves I on the I back? Think, I
1: think the president is of multiple minds about this at the same time. So uh, on the one hand, you know, he always he, – he does say, you know, I don't want to fill these jobs um, and, you know, dismantle the, the uh, administrative state, that sort of stuff. Although dismantle and administrative state are words that are a little long for him. So he leaves saying that to Bannon. Um, on the other hand, if you watch his video when he went to, to the CIA – it was important to him to say to the CIA workforce something that is almost surely not true, which was that I know you all voted for me. Right. And he actually – it was important to him to to bask in the adulation of the eight people in that audience who were excited about him or the however many there were.
2: They were and, loud.
1: They were loud. Um, and, you know um, – and i I think you know he can he holds in his mind two ideas at the same time. one is that he's making America great again, and the you know the people who the people who do u s foreign policy are all behind him, and the other is that you know to the extent they're not that's because they're Obama holdover evil deep staters who are uh you know you know Stopping America from becoming great again. and I, I think those those two ideas really do coexist for him,
3: you know, i I guess I wondered, even if all that's right, how does that match up with Secretary Tillerson's incredibly deliberate and very drawn out effort to reorganize the State Department? I mean, clearly, he took the job with the mandate to cut the budget, to consolidate and to reorganize. But the way he's going about that sort of, okay, announcing he's gonna do it, taking the budget cut, but then he's doing the staff survey. He's do- There's gonna be a set of working groups under the deputy secretary of state to investigate how to reorganize. They're gonna <laughs> present a plan in the fall that you know Congress is gonna wanna look at as it sets the budget. And then they're not going to implement anything until next year. And in the meantime, Tillerson implied when he testified on the Hill that he might leave a lot of these senior sub-cabinet jobs vacant uh, while he figures out the reorganization. It's like this very extended management consulting, thorough approach, um, as opposed to what Bannon wants to do, which is just disrupt, which is just like... Yeah. You know, or what Trump may feel, which is, I don't need professional negotiators in the foreign policy bureaucracy. I'm the negotiator, and Jared's the negotiator. You know, so it's like, why bother going through this reorganization exercise?
2: It's a really interesting point too, because I've wondered to what extent does Rex Tillerson? And I think we're seeing the signs of it. We talked about this last week. Uh, looks at Jared and others in the White House who are clearly engaging in high-level <clears throat> foreign policy discussions, whether it be with the Saudis or the Israelis or the Palestinians, and kind of says, like, well, what am I doing here, right? I mean, I'm only running the diplomatic arm of the government.
0: I'm um, in charge
3: of the reorg. But,
0: and that you can constantly be <laughs> be second-guessed and undermined, right. and it's that at, at him, best, yeah. you have the second to last sort of bite at the apple because somebody else has the ability to come in and change the president's no, no.
1: mind. T- Tillerson has an extremely important role in the Trump administration, which is he runs the organization that doesn't write all the visas. <laughs> That's that's the State Department's job in the Trump administration, is to, is to not, is issue, to not visas. issue visas.
2: I do think it's also important to look at Tillerson to some extent for what he is, which is an engineer. I mean, by training, he was an engineer with Exxon. He came up through the ranks. This is, a, you know, Steve Call writes about this in his book, this highly regimented company for which there is a manual for like everything, right? And so as an organizational task, it seems that reorganizing the State Department, which come on, it's something that lots of other secretaries have tried to do, Colin Powell, others, et cetera, is probably something that he's pretty well suited to. But most of them tend to delegate that to, you know, a deputy and kind of go about the business of foreign policy and of statecraft from the position of the secretary's office, which is apparently not happening.
3: Well, but I wouldn't say it's not happening. I think that he has been given two significant tasks. One is, Dialogue with uh, Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov on sort of how oh, to <coughs> how true. to reset the U.S.-Russia relationship, and the other is leading the civilian side along with Mattis, who's leading the defense side of this U.S.-China strategic dialogue. The first round of which just took place the other week, and so I think he does see himself as having some diplomatic meat to his job. But I I guess what I find striking is the culture clash between that sort of engineering rules generating let's regularize approach and the culture of the diplomatic core which to its credit is spitballing it's like the world is a complicated place things happen really fast throw you in the deep end and we'll scotch it all scotch tape it all together and make it work that's how the state department has run for decades and that's actually a culture that people there are very proud of and so it seems to me that to the extent Tillerson is genuinely and sincerely trying to turn this place into a procedures based, regularized organization. That culture clash is going to be pretty fierce. Yeah.
2: Um, well, let's pivot on to actual statecraft, shall we? Um, so uh, oh, North- We don't
3: do statecraft mm-hmm. anymore. <laughs> <on>.
2: <laughs> well, we're going to have to start. Guess what? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yesterday, the 4th of July, happy 4th of July, uh, North Korea launched a missile that Rex Tillerson actually came out and confirmed is, in fact, an intercontinental ballistic missile. Um, this is uh, happening on the eve of President Trump going off to Poland first, and then he's going to be in Germany for the G20, where he is going to have a face-to-face with Vladimir Putin. Um, a lot to unpack here. Quickly, I just want to touch on the North Korea issue, because there's, there's we have a real crisis brewing as this kind of diplomatic event happens, which I think many people are expecting the G20 to try and be. Well, the question is, will President Trump try and make this a reset of his last trip to Europe? But we'll get to that in a second. One question I just want to put to, the, to you guys, how significant is it that this is a confirmed ICBM launch? By North Korea. But one
0: thing that I, to note is the DOD actually used different terms. So they said that that it was an intermediate range, which is different okay, than an intercontinental. Right. So it's even even for something like this where the terminology is so significant. It appears that sort of state and DOD do not have sort of their ducks in a row on it. Um, so who knows what uh, what the actual official statement will be at the end? But already we're seeing some sort of weird mismatch in, in the well, terminology they're using.
3: Right, and and it it matters actually actually, because whether this was a two-stage rocket that, in theory, could get across an ocean from one continent to another, or whether it's you know it's something that we recognize as a reliably intercontinental device, um, matters because preventing North Korea from getting ICBM capability has been a major tripwire for previous american administrations it's been the thing that we've been trying to prevent by trying to deny the missile technology by you know using sanctions pressuring the chinese etc plus trump tweeted that it and will he, not happen he said it will never happen and look a few months into his term it's happened and so it if you recognize this as icbm capability then it's a major advance, and it bec- and it sort of demands uh, a major American response or ratcheting up. Um, if you don't, if you say, "Well, it's a, it was a two-stage missile, but we're not really sure it can do much, and it was really inaccurate, or whatever," then you can push it off and and um, and keep working on your policy review. Uh, but I I think that this was big enough. Uh, And more importantly, the kind of escalation in North Korean behavior and the repeated rocket launches are important enough that they are going to demand a significant American response
0: but what are even really the options and i say this you know decidedly not as any kind of north korea expert but what are so we 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 sort of know the general range of possibilities because it's something past administrations many past administrations have struggled with something between sort of military action on on one end and, and doing nothing another uh, nothing or soft sanctions or sort of asking china to do something on the other um That was all before there was a belief that they had sort of nuclear capabilities. So now they have a nuke and and potentially or even probably a way to deliver it. Um how does that meaningfully change the set of options that should be on the table for responsible countries um you know if let's assume that let's assume that they do have a nuke that they can deliver uh, somewhere in the united states they do
1: have have nukes that they can deliver they can't deliver them to the united states but they can deliver them to south korea japan
0: right but um, that's been true for for at least well, a number they could of years put on a years. boat
2: and deliver it to the united
0: states yeah, presumably right, with a the, the, yeah.
1: you know north korea you know Red Alert, uh, Newsflash, it's really dangerous and they're scary people and um, we like to pretend they're comic for some reason. But there's nothing comical about them. Mm. Um, and um, the most important thing they have is not nukes. It's uh, thousands and thousands of artillery pieces pointed at one of the most densely populated cities in the world and a major commercial hub of of, of, of East Asia. And uh, they, can, they can kill a lot of people on very, very short notice, and they're absolutely morally capable of doing it. And that's the fundamental problem. But uh, there is this one tool that, you know, people have reserved, stopped short of using because it's a flashpoint in US-China relations. Uh, but you could start sanctioning Chinese banks. Uh, and we, we sanctioned one little one, um, but... Uh, you know, people who believe that there's something you can do about North Korea, and of course that's a that's a hypothesis, not a not a certainty. Uh, everybody who believes that seems to believe that the country that can actually do it is China, and so the question is, what's the incentive structure for Ch- in which China would take a more aggressive posture toward North Korea than it has? Uh, and one possible way to think about that is to start. Sanctioning Chinese businesses that are actively involved in, in business in, in North Korea and to ratchet up the pressure on China. Now that has collateral consequences for all sorts of U.S. China relations that are separate from North Korea. But I think that's probably the direction that, that people are thinking. And it was certainly on the table in the latter years of the Obama administration.
3: Well, so first of all, I, I think that the options for U.S. policy toward North Korea are the same as they've been, and they're all bad. Um, And that was true for the Bush administration. It's true for the Obama administration. It's true today. True for the Clinton administration. Yes. So, you know, the sort of turning of the screw on China as a way of trying to increase the effectiveness of denying North Korea access to resources and technology is, you know, It's kind of the least change in the current approach, Um, and you're right that it it could have collateral consequences for other dimensions of U.S.-Chinese interests. But in fact, what President Trump's signaling, if we take his tweets as evidence of policy, which you know we've debated before on the show, and I think we probably have to at this point, um, is that Trump sees the those other issues in U.S.-Chinese relations as leverage he can use against the Chinese. So going into this G20 meeting, one of the big questions on the table is something he's been hinting about, which is whether he's going to declare uh, Chinese steel, unfair um, Uh, in its uh, China unfair in its trade practices with respect to steel exports to the United States and impose tariffs on Chinese steel. Um, The other uh, countries of the G20 probably won't go along and do the same thing, but it would have a significant effect on the U.S.-China relationship, and it might be something that he sees as leverage uh, against the Chinese on North Korea, in addition to which the U.S. conducted a freedom of navigation exercise. It's second in the last month in, um, in East Asia this week. And, you know, so there are other ways that the U.S. can ratchet up the pressure on China. The question is whether there's clear kind of trade-offs um, with the Chinese that can be worked out Uh, Or whether this is just sort of an escalation in tensions in the hope that China will, quote, do the right thing on North Korea, unquote, without specifying. Right, but sort of... It doesn't appear as though Trump has
0: laid the groundwork for any
3: kind of productive,
0: even even getting tough with China, right? He's sort of uh, for a
3: real estate guy. Laying the groundwork (laughs) does not
0: seem to be his forte, right? But like you know, right? You know, is he going to, um, you know, declare uh, Chinese still a threat to national security? It's basically the same conversation he had with regards to is China a currency manipulator, right? Where he sort of uses this vague threat, then is you know educated, uh, you know, previously by by the Xi Jinping visit. On well, what that actually means, and then says, oh, oh, never mind. And so he's already sort of burned his credibility with China in a number of confrontations, beginning with sort of the initial call with the Taiwanese president, m- you know, moving up into this currency manipulation and, and, and the conversations that occurred during the uh, the Xi visit. Um, and now we're sort of in the next iteration of that. So if you were China looking at the history of your relationship with Trump, I don't know why you would believe him to be sort of reliable in his threats or, or somebody who's even capable of being tough on you, especially whenever we know that um, that whatever meaningful choices he takes against China are going to come with real costs to him and real economic costs and, and real political costs, uh, both both at home and abroad. So I just, I, I don't see him having made those moves or, or laid the groundwork for that signaling at all.
2: Tomorrow, as as a political exercise and a diplomatic one, how important is it for Trump going into the G20 to try and hit the reset button? I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of people in the White House who think that's the last thing we want to do coming out of the last meeting in Brussels. This is great, you know? We we
3: All the Europeans are nervous. We like them that way. Right, exactly.
2: Yeah. I, mean, so, so, I mean, so what are we, or what do you think that people are expecting or hoping to see from him on this trip? I mean, to Susan's point, I mean, I think that the question of Consistency and reliability. I mean, I don't think anybody, any of these powers, presume that there's any consistency or reliability in the administration. There's been no evidence of it. So, what's the? What do you think people are hoping for going into this meeting?
3: Well, I I think that's actually a really important point because whether you're a competitor or even an adversary of the United States, or whether you're an ally, um, a lack of a sense that that commitments from the U.S. are not reliable or policy declarations are not reliable. Um, is a huge problem because you don't know how to behave. Um, Or you might simply conclude from that that no matter what the President of the United States says, he's not actually going to get in your way, and so you can go ahead and do whatever you want. And so, you know, if what we see is... Uh, a Trumpian approach that involves trying to have functionally cooperative relationships on major issues with China on the one hand and Russia on the other. And there is going to be this Trump Putin bilat, uh, bilateral. Leave them alone together. Right. We should uh, place the bets G20. now on whether or not they are left alone. Together.
2: That's a great question, I put too, 20 yeah. on <clears throat> a private meeting. The readout of that meeting and who's going to have the more detailed one, us or the Kremlin.
3: Right. And I think that what we've seen repeatedly from Trump in his bilateral engagements, whether it's with the Japanese Prime Minister Abe at the very beginning um, or his trip to Saudi Arabia, is that the the governments he's interacting with have their asks. They know what they want from the United States. They come into these meetings with very clear asks. And, the, and Trump doesn't have an agenda. In fact, on the Putin meeting, um, the national security advisor as much as said, we don't have a concrete agenda for the meeting. I don't think the president has an agenda. You know, so it th- his real agenda is, I want you to treat me like a big deal. Yeah. I want you to say that you love me. Um, and so what it, what it means is that these other uh, governments are easily able to sort of trade that approval, that stamp of approval for their specific asks. And the and Trump gives away American leverage again and again. He
0: gets played.
3: He gets played. And I think this is the danger that a lot of European governments um, see as Trump goes first to Poland before he even gets to the G20 meeting. Uh, and he has an opportunity there to either send some strong signals about Russia's role in Eastern Europe or... Not right. <laughs> Repeat his uh, his commitment to NATO and to Article Five, or not right. Uh, tout Poland as a counterbalance to Russia, or tout it as a counterbalance to Germany and and Angela Merkel. So I think that Europeans really see this trip as like walking the knife's edge. And one way or another, by the time it's over, they're going to know what to expect from him.
2: All right, uh, let's move on to object lessons. Um, <clears throat> I'll go first because I think Ben has the best object. So I'll just go ahead and get mine out of the way. <laughs> <clears throat> um, this is this. So it's not often that the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Corps publishes things to its website, right? Um, this
3: is the most secret court in the country, right? right
2: it's the super secret rubber stamp court. No, it's not a rubber stamp. Um, <laughs> it's not a rubber stamp. It's not a rubber stamp. <laughs> so a group it's called what's that it's a
1: potato stamp. it's a potato the
3: stamp. you made in preschool yeah. <laughs> oh great
2: <laughs> i tried to make one of those ones and it didn't work i was just never good at those projects um Fisacord
1: is actually not a stamp of any kind right but if it were going to be a stamp stop calling it a rubber stamp it's such a cliche let's go with woodcut stamp or potato Ooh, stamp
2: or i like that a woodcut yeah. a woodcut the woodcut stamp of the fisk um it received emotion uh From a group called Landmark Legal Foundation um, to uh, appear as an amicus before the court in which the landmark says respectfully urges the court to exercise its inherent authority to protect against the administration of justice, the integrity of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act and direct the federal government to conduct a thorough investigation into leaks. That is
0: not how that works. Right. (laughs) So there's
2: that, right? (laughs) At at all. So you can't write file a motion to appear as an amicus before the court to have the court direct the government to investigate leaks coming out of probably not the court, but probably somewhere else in the government about FISA. Um, And, like, there were so many ways that the FISA court could have, like, they could have said, dude, not how this works, Um, try again, Um, you know. Go read Constitution, whatever. Um, but they just report reported back, and they said the court order says, although presented as a request to procure, appear as a friend of the court, there is no matter pending before the court with respect to which such an appearance would be proper. Which is almost <laughs> kind of like saying, like, don't know what you're talking <laughs> we, about. We and who the hell are you? What are, are, you are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just thought it was just weird and delightful, and you can go read it on fisk.uscourts.gov,
0: and you too can file a completely random amicus brief to the court. <laughs> no, no, uh, it's a
2: motion
1: right, to the, appear the motion to as appear, as an amicus. Amicus. It's not and ask them a...
0: to litigate your marital disputes or whatever <laughs> other <laughs> random well, issue. issue.
1: Yeah. And if you're Louise Mensch, you can you can ask them to in- issue secret indictments of the president <laughs> of, the,
0: of the like the grand marshal of the grand jury or I, I can't remember the sergeant in arms. We need
2: to get a woodcut stamp from the fist that just said not how this (laughs)
1: Maybe we should start a hashtag for people who want to suggest things for the Fisk to do. How about hashtag the fisk should, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then you no. can send your suggestions of things the fisk should undertake to hashtag my dog. the fisk In disputes should. with your
2: neighbors, <laughs> and um, mad at Uber.
1: And if we if if we get good suggestions for the fisk uh, over the course of the week, we'll we'll read them next yeah, week on no rational no. security.
2: That is some of the problems you'd like the most. Secret intelligence court, secret court in the land, to solve. Um, ben, what's your object? Mm-hmm. So uh, a
1: number of weeks ago, as listeners may remember. I uh, received uh, a package with a tiny little cannon.
3: You received a package. You mean (laughs) you you requested it, (laughs) purchased it, and then it came.
1: (laughs) And last week, apropos of Shane's story, um, uh, Rachel Maddow uh, went on television and uh, did a. Inexplicably long uh, discussion of my tendency to to tweet tick tick tick, which I formally retired last week. And as oh, it's po-
2: explicable. It's because she loves it. Okay, well, it the, was uh, so good too. By the way, her um, windup was wow. great.
1: Shane was on the set at the time. Yeah, I was
2: literally like standing by, waiting to go live with her, and cracking up. It was just great.
1: So. Hmm. In the course of doing this, she showed a number of uh, times the video that I had made, which I used for the Tick, 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 Boom, uh, is uh, the little tiny cannon, which I call Baby Cannon, uh, obliterating a uh, can of Dr. Brown's Diet Cherry soda. And... um, Hates that soda. Yeah. Grossest
0: of all sodas. Baby
1: Cannon does not like Diet Dr. Brown's Cherry. Uh, So in response to this... Uh, Baby Cannon received a just wave of Twitter love, um, and I, I, you know, I, which you know, I love the it's Baby Cannon. Moving. So, so Brilliant. Baby Cannon was very moved by this, and spent some time this weekend uh, creating new uh, videos um, in my neighborhood. Oh. Five of them to to speak. We. Uh, you know, some
3: people have dogs who are Instagram stars. Some people make cat videos. Ben makes baby cannon videos. Yeah, <laughs> and it was
2: Fourth of July, so blowing stuff up in the neighborhood. Exactly. Is so we, we blew timely. up. We
1: we 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 blew up an egg. Um, we blew up a piece of dry ice. We blew up uh, a light bulb filled with red, white, and blue glitter, which you can see on. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. We tweeted it out for Fourth of July. Uh, We blew up a can of Silly String. And then the really special one, which I'm going to save, I'm afraid, for a really good story uh, that requires a special boom, blew up a can of expandable foam sealant. And it it was just a thing of beauty. And And
3: just a program note for everyone out there expandable foam sealant we learned will adhere to plant life <laughs> yeah it made quite a mess in the front and yard listeners,
0: if you have other suggestions for things that ben should should blow up at the home he shares with tammy please send us our way yeah. she'll um, she'll really and i will deep six
3: every idea i just want to point
1: out that every single one of these baby canon video uh was suggested by somebody on twitter
3: the internet
0: just gives and gives. It gives <laughs> and
1: gives. Giving. Keeps so giving. from Baby Cannon to all of you, thank you.
2: And thank you to all of you for listening. That brings us to the end of the show. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find our show archive at our webpage. You can find us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL security, or you can send us things that you want to ben or the fisa court to blow up for that matter go for it have at it let us know uh whenever you download the podcast from apple podcasts or stitcher or your favorite podcatcher please leave us a five-star rating and review leave us one that baby Cannon would be proud very proud to show us his own boom <laughs> it sure helps that other people find the podcast And to all of our new listeners we are very glad that you're here our audio engineer this week is Matt Kahn, filling in for Quinta Jurassic. Our show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Our music was performed this week by Rex Tillerson and the Disappointed Diplomats. Aww. Aww. It's a blues band. <laughs> 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 no, our music is performed, as always, by Sophia Yan, who, you know, doesn't play blues as far as I know, but probably would rock it if she did.
0: Yeah,
1: she, she, would. she, 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 would, she should do some
0: of that. Oh, she should. Sophia can do
2: anything. She can do anything including blow up whatever she wants. <laughs> On behalf of my friends Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittis and Tamara Kaufman Wittis, I'm Shane Harris. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next week.
1: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy.